Good afternoon. I'm Scott Walston, president of TPI, and I'll be moderating this fireside chat, which is part of TPI's winter spectrum series. This year marks the 30th anniversary of the first spectrum auctions, which have helped foster a wireless revolution around the world. We're fortunate to have with us today two people who are among a group that's truly responsible for making auctions a reality and heralding in the wireless age. Evan Querell from the FCC and Paul Milgram from Stanford. When Evan won the Paul Volcker Career, Career Achievement Medal, the awarding group summed up the importance of both our guests well. They said, quote, the market-based FCC auctions were conceived and implemented by Evan Querell based on many of the theories of Nobel Prize-winning economists Paul Milgram and Bob Wilson. It's really not overstating the case to say that Evan and Paul and, and some others helped create more consumer surplus around the world than just about anyone else. So today we're going to talk about the history of auctions, how we got there, how unique the process was, and where we're likely to go from here, the challenges that we face ahead. Now, to set the stage a little more and remind people what an enormous development these auctions were, let me take you back to 1994. I was at Stanford working on my PhD then. And at the time, not every grad student had their own computer, so we spent a lot of time in a room in the econ building full of PCs. And during a PCS auction, I remember it was auction one or four, I was in there working. A stampede of economists came barging into the room to check online how the auction was going. You could practically feel the air leave the room as they sucked in their breath and held it waiting for the results to load. You know, it takes a lot to make economists stampede and the auction did the trick. I don't remember whether I've ever finished what I was working on, um, but it's really an honor to have Evan and Paul with us today. Thank you both for joining. That was auction one, by the way. It was auction one, okay. <laughs> I remember that one too. It was the summertime and there was an eclipse right during the auction. I, you know, I, I remember a lot of detail about, wow. about that time. Yeah, there was a <laughs> conference going on at Stanford and people wanted to know what was happening here. So, yeah. That explains why there were so many people who came in. I, I remember that. Let's start by going back before the auctions. Tell us a little bit about the path leading up to making spectrum auctions a reality, including, you know, what kind of opposition was there and how was that opposition overcome? Well, before I talk about that, I just I just wanted one, thank you for inviting me. And 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 two, just to give a disclaimer to note that whatever I say here are my personal opinions and don't reflect the, the opinions of Federal Communications Commission or staff or any anybody anybody else. So Paul, can I can I please start start with that, but please feel Free to uh, interrupt me because you were part of this. And anyway, so first, you know, you asked um, about opposition to auctions, and um, I think the, the the primary opposition, as far as industry groups, was the broadcasting industry. And while I don't think it was ever publicly stated, my understanding was that broadcasters were opposed to auctions, not specifically because they were worried that their spectrum would be auctioned because they, there was a good chance that all the discussion was that they would be carved out, but they were concerned that the FCC adopting a market-based approach to spectrum management might lead to Congress imposing fees on broadcasters for the use of spectrum. So they didn't, you know, to use whatever the, the, the cliche is, they didn't want to go down the slippery snow slope or have the camel get his nose under their tent. So they, so they were they, they were opposed to it. And I will also note that there were what I would consider policy concerns on the part of legislators. 
and concerns that are still that you still hear today and which I think are generally fallacies but but I think you know there 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 are certainly plausible concerns and and I know that this is the case because we had hearings in 1986 on this and two issues that came up were first if licensees had to pay for their spectrum there was a thought that they'd have to raise prices to consumers and they were also worried that somehow that auctions would lead to greater market concentration and warehousing and i could try to debunk those but i think you know at least economists would argue that that they're not not valid so let me just mention the the factors that led to that led to passage of auction legislation in other words in terms of overcoming um, the opposition and there were two main factors one was a need for government revenue and the second was that the existing system just wasn't working anymore so let, let me very briefly elaborate on on those two points and then i will stop and let paul uh, chime in or Scott, if he wants to add things. As far as revenue, what, in, as, as you recall, Bill Clinton was elected in 1992. And in 1990, Congress passed this legislation, pay as you go, which required all new expenditures to be financed by new revenues. And it actually did make a dent on, 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 the, on the deficit. It was effective legislation. But it, but it put a tremendous amount of pressure on the administration to raise new revenues. And auctions were seen as an important source of, of new revenue because the spectrum was becoming increasingly valuable. And, and the second factor was that demand for cellular license were so enormous that it put great pressure on existing methods of spectrum license assignments. They had like, 400,000 lottery applications for the least valuable cellular licenses. So the existing systems were failing and, and the government needed revenue. And, and the last point I'll, I'll make on this was that underlying these two things, that there was an underlying economic factor, which was that cellular technology led to a great increase in demand for spectrum and the value and the increase in value of the spectrum. So, you know, if, if the spectrum wasn't valuable, you couldn't get any revenue from it. If the spectrum weren't so valuable, people wouldn't be clamoring for licenses. And that, that was the sort of underlying economic factor that that led to this. So let me let me stop right there. So the, you know, I think you could compare what happened in the US from what happened elsewhere in the world. And <clears throat> when the first um US spectrum auctions were run, the industry was very fragmented compared to today, lots of different participants. If you take a look at what happened, let's say in the UK or places, other places in Europe where the where the industry was more settled, the incumbents could figure, gee, we'd rather get, we know what spectrum we're gonna get, we'd rather get it for free than, than have to pay, you know, have to pay for it. And that became a, a special concern, echoing some of the things that you, Evan, said, when, the prices were so high in the UK, and the uh, and and people were saying, you know, they're spending so much money buying spectrum, they can't afford to invest in infrastructure. It was uh, again this this uh, idea they'd never heard of fixed costs apparently over there. But anyway, the uh, 
there, there were concerns about, about financing. And, uh, but in the U.S., it wasn't clear who was going to get the licenses. The licenses had been, the, the, the incumbents weren't the ones who were getting it under the lottery system. Evan mentioned before the auctions of all these, this huge number of applications, it's because anybody could apply. You could be a flight attendant or a dentist or whatever and stick in an application to, you know, provide mobile service somewhere. And you'd compete on the same basis as anyone else because the, 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 there was uh, so there were so many applications. It was so overwhelming. They had adopted a lottery system. So the the the, the real uh, product companies were paying for their spectrum anyway. They were buying it from uh, from people who were being awarded licenses of lotteries, and that's not what was happening elsewhere in the world where there was uh, more resistance. And they ended up uh, using other tricks like putting in spectrum caps so that uh, nobody would be allowed. If there were four companies, nobody'd be allowed to buy more than a quarter of the spectrum, which so there wouldn't be wouldn't be any competition in the auctions. They did uh, all sorts of things to try to keep the auction prices down so that the incumbents uh, didn't need to pay. But the situation that Evan is describing was the situation in the US. And, and you know, I agree that uh, at that point, there wouldn't be resistance from the wireless companies themselves. They weren't getting their spectrum for free. And uh, they preferred this uh, organized system to the chaos of the lotteries that had existed before. One of the unique features of of the of the process was how many different groups were working together to make this happen. I mean, there was the FCC and uh, and industry and academics, and there didn't seem to be a partisan divide in any of this. I mean, maybe this is this is an example of a. 2020 hindsight being having rose-colored glasses, but it sure seemed like that, and it's it's a process that I don't know that we've seen much of. Then, maybe you could talk a little bit about that process because it really was something unique. Let, let me just before talking about the first auctions and led to that, just note that it happened that that there was bipartisan cooperation again. Um, 2012, That's when true. when the Spectrum Act was passed, and and Congress gave us authority to have a two-sided auction, so, and that was that was that was truly bipartisan. I mean, you had yes. a Republican, a Fred Upton, and a Democrat, Waxman, um, Waxman. I'm sorry, Waxman. You know who who were both both supporting that. So you know things may have gotten more polarized now, but it, it, there was still, you know, polarization then, and 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 people did come together on 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 that. And people, I mean, legislate legislators. So it was not unique, but but it was certainly rare. So first thing I would say is is that one has to do with um, who was chairman. You know, when 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 the when auction legislation passed, we had an exceptional chairman, Reed Hunt. And, you know, I will say that I think he, you know, generally, you know, put good policy above politics. I mean, you have to be political or you wouldn't be able to, to implement policy. But as a general matter, his first priority was, you know, what's, what's the right thing? And he, he valued economics and he valued economists. He was also 
You know, I mean, he really appreciated economists. He was willing to take risks. And I think that's a critical thing. And, and I'll talk about that in terms of willing to adopt, you know, Paul and Bob Wilson's, you know, innovative simultaneous multiple round auction design. And, and, and another piece was that he assembled a great team in the, in the chairman's office. I mean, don't underestimate, you know, the, the importance of, of, of those people. And, and, you know, perhaps to give me, I don't know, to be immodest, you know, one, one of his key staffers, Don Gibbs, and, and, and the chairman were willing to take a chance on me to figure out how to do the auction design. There wasn't a whole group of people. And, and you know, it was a risky thing. You know, who's this guy? You know, he talks a good talk. He seems to know what he's doing, but, you know, that's, you know, I appreciated that. And, you know, of course, I had Paul Milgram to rely on, so he wasn't taking such a risk. But, and, <laughs> um, okay, so that's the first factor is I, I think we had a exceptional chairman. Well, but wait, actually, I'm going to go back to that a little bit because, you know, you, you did you did have Paul, but you were still going to somebody, there's no reason why at the time Reed would have known anything about auction theory. And so you guys are coming into his office talking about this thing that's completely different and without any, no, no matter how smart he is, no reason to believe he, he would know much about it to begin with. Why was he, why was he open to it? They didn't have the other thing that you have to keep in mind is they didn't have an auctions division back then. Right. That's what that's I was right. nobody, there was nobody there who, who, you know, sort of was an expert in auctions and they get this legislation that says run an auction and they say, well, who here knows how to run an auction? Well, let's give it to what was then the office of plans and policy. And they didn't know what to do. They said, well, let's ask Evan to write something. I mean, Evan writes this, this notice of proposed rulemaking, which is, uh, you know, he tried to read the auction literature, but he was making stuff up. There was the, the thing that came out there was, uh, was uh, that he put out, was wild. I mean, it was it was filled with ideas, and it caused the companies to go out to auction economists and say, "What is this stuff? Is this good for us? Is it bad for us?" So you know, I I got calls from a couple of companies. Bob Bob got calls from lots of people who academics who you cited in footnotes, which is how these guys even knew our names. I was just some auction theorist at Stanford. And, why would anybody call me? How would they even know about me? Well, you cited my papers and footnotes in your notice of proposed rulemaking. So I started getting these calls and that helped, uh, that created the dynamic that drew in all these academics that ended up, you know, working with you and contributing. You know, I, Paul, I agree with you 100%. I wrote out some bullet points and, and, be, and you know, you nailed it. That's, that's exactly, you know, what, what you you got bullet points two and three. That said it better than I could. And you said it, you know, with 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 more knowledge because you were there. You were the ones that were called. A, a corollary to one, one of the points that 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 uh, Paul made, which was that there was nobody else in the agent. There was nobody in the agency. There was no auction division. It was completely new. Related to that was that, and Paul, I think, said this. It was done with a very, very small task force in OPP, Office of Plans and Policy. You know, it was not, it was not bureaucratic. It was, it was very um, nimble and had close communications with, the, with the, the chairman's office. I think that made a big difference. It didn't work like a standard large bureaucracy. Um, 
And, and my, my last point, which you can, um, <laughs> which is to give some more credit to Paul, that in terms of, you know, how it happened and why it worked, was Paul was committed to working with the, with, with the FCC to, to make it work, to refine the design, show how it could work and make it work. And Paul, could you tell your story about how you, how you paid for the, paid, paid for the Excel sure. spreadsheet? <laughs> so yeah, when we designed this, we came up with this, you know, the simultaneous multiple round design. And there were people out there saying, oh no, that's way too complicated. It could never work. Nobody's ever done anything like that. And my client had been financing my trips to DC and so on. But when I said, well, you know, I wanted to make one more trip. I wanted to code it. I wanted to show that it could be done by using the Excel spreadsheets of the day and have an Excel spreadsheet that a bidder could use to submit bids and have an auctioneer spreadsheet and import the data from the auctioneers uh, from the bidder spreadsheets and and apply the rules and show them, you know, you can do this. It isn't that hard. And the client said, no, they didn't want to spend the money on that. So I hired my own research assistant with my own money and and had that coded. And when the next trip to DC, I had it on one of those little three and a half inch disks. And when I visited the FCC, I handed it to Evan and said, it works. You can run it on your computer at home. Here it is. And I gave him a, a three and a half inch disk that had the the two Excel spreadsheets that would communicate with each other. The one spreadsheet would, if you put in your bids and you broke the rules, it would tell you, no, you know, that, that bid wasn't allowed. It wasn't very fancy by modern standards, but anyway, it, it guaranteed that you would submit only an eligible bid and, uh, and it processed the bids and said, okay, it can be done. Yeah. So I, I think there's, you know, you know, two points to that story. One is the substance. That it, that it was helpful, and two, it just it just shows the commitment that 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 Paul had to making this making this thing work, and I think that was critical because it wasn't like he just dropped it over the transom and it, and it, and it was you know born you know perfect you know immaculate conception or something you know I mean it required refinements, and Paul was willing to work with us to you know to address various concerns. I had, to, I had to answer the it's too complicated stuff from others. And I just kind of showed you it isn't that complicated. Here, I could do it on my own computer was what I had but, to show you. This is also maybe a good place to talk about how far things have come and how much it's evolved because the, 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 the broadcast incentive auction took massive amounts of computing power. And, you know, what talk about the development of the complexity of the modeling and how computing power, increased computing power has mattered. And because like I was telling Evan earlier, I think it's now illegal to have any conversation without talking about AI, how machine learning and, and AI are helping with the simulations and so on. So I can talk about the complexity of that. First of all, the problem was inherently complex because when you're trying to pack the, uh, the remaining broadcasters into a fixed amount of spectrum, that's what's called the graph coloring problem. It's a famous problem in, in uh, in operations research and computer science, and it's in the there's a branch of computer science called complexity theory. This is a what's called an NP-hard problem, which means it's very hard even for computers to do this in the optimal way, and uh, so hard that there don't exist any algorithms that are guaranteed to do it fast and actually do it in the optimal way. So, so we ended up when I 
made my contract with the FCC to do that. They helped me put together the team I needed. I got Kevin Layton Brown, who did some research as to who actually solves problems like this in practice. And Kevin was the guy who's a brilliant computer scientist. And he had a rack of, of 2,000 processors in his lab at the University of British Columbia that were running experiments and algorithms that would work well for a problem very much like this. That is, they were looking at the at the graph of television stations as they existed in North America and the interference patterns as it existed in North America. And we knew we would be packing some subset of the existing stations. And so we were generating sets that might arise from the auction and running experiments on how to tune the parameters. And so this was a this was machine learning about algorithms. The machine was learning how to how to find an algorithm that would run reasonably well in real time for the actual problem that was being solved. And, and that took years of computer time with, you know, lots of processors running in parallel, running experiments to come up with this. And I'm only describing some of what Kevin did. This was the, this would, it was his early successes with that, however, that convinced me that we would be able to run the kind of auction we ran. And I remember that uh, when we, we needed to be able to run, to be able to check whether there was room for a TV station in a minute or less to have any kind of real-time processing. And uh, the median run times when Kevin started were all longer than five minutes. And when when Kevin was finished with this step, the median run time, which is median is only 50%. I don't want to exaggerate what the accomplishment was, but it dropped from over five minutes to a seventh of a second. From this, uh, from the, and I said, okay, you know, with that kind of improvement, I'm going to anticipate that we will be able to run these things fast enough to actually do. So our auction design was predicated on Kevin being able to to get very fast run times, which indeed he did, and it helped the auction run really well. So we have a question before we move on, and it's from uh, Johannes Bauer. Johannes. Uh, so I don't know if he's just on the hall from you, Evan, or not right now. But he says, <laughs> that's right. He says, thank you for these insights. Since the 1990s, you've been involved in many additional developments that have advanced the theory and practice of auctions. Could you give a few more insights of what kept this partnership working in such a productive way, given different commission chairs, changes in politics, and so on? And uh, did Stanford facilitate any of the work? Okay, so that sounds like it's aimed at me. So the, the Stanford didn't really do much. It was the the as Stanford. There were several other people at Stanford who were really interested in auctions. Of course, Bob Wilson was there for one, Andy Skripnik, Mike, Mike Ostrovsky. There were and Ilya Segal who joined me in the work on the on the incentive auction. So there were other scholars who were interested in and there were other countries who were interested as well. I ended up advising uh, Canada, the UK and Australia, basically all the English speaking world on auctions and a little bit in some other countries as well. And then we got called upon by bidders. So all of those things sort of uh, provided an incentive and funding actually for uh, for the research that we did, you know, the continual funding, you know, around the world. And then it wasn't all, it wasn't not just the FCC, it wasn't all just radio spectrum either. The, the, the kind of auction theory we were doing earlier was about how best to sell one thing at a time. And 
the kind of auction theory that we were doing after 1993 was not about that anymore. It was about, you know, what about multiple heterogeneous things? What about electricity? What about, you know, uh, uh, what about internet advertising? What about, uh, you know, right now I'm, I'm working on issues about water rights. You know, there, there are many, many potential applications for uh, market processes that involve multiple heterogeneous things being sold, and how do you best do that? And that turns out to be involve entirely different sets of ideas than what we were working on before the, I mean, there, there's a whole new areas of research that opened up because of those of us in the academic world being focused on a different and more relevant set of problems. Okay, let's turn to, oh, sorry, Evan, did you want to say something? Okay, well, let's turn to looking uh, ahead now. So if you read any paper on spectrum auctions, it usually starts off by saying we used to allocate licenses by beauty contest, then by lottery, as, as Paul noted. And now we, we've now we've, we've seen the light and we, we use auctions. But um, in some ways, we've really just backed the process up a little bit, right? There's, there's still so much of spectrum licensing that's done by beauty contest. For example, the decision, is it going to be exclusive licensed? Is it going to be unlicensed? Is it going to be shared? That's still beauty contest with every party coming in and lobbying for their preferred view. And I don't mean lobbying in a bad way. It's their, they've got, that's their job to present their, their, their points on this because we don't have another way of doing it. Are there ways to bring market mechanisms into, you know, either that decision, how far back can they go? You know, at what point do we run into sort of an impossibility theorem that someone's setting the rules that determine the outcome? So there's there's a whole bunch of things that come before you you do an auction. Uh, auctions are, when you know, the price system, if you studied the price system in a graduate economics course 20 years ago, and you, you read about general equilibrium theory and how everything about resource allocation could be determined to once you had the correct prices, if there were market clearing prices, then you would get an efficient allocation. That was, uh, many of us learned to think, you know, markets are the ultimate solution for everything, but it's not right. There are, well, there's nothing wrong with the theory as it exists, but the problem, the problem formulation is strange. It starts with a, uh, uh, you know, with give, given items, no externalities with the, the truth is in the world, there are lots of externalities. You can't have broadcast broadcaster operating on the same or adjacent spectrum to where mobile broadband license is used. The, the, the way the property rights are defined, what the overall plan is for the use is not so well decided by a bunch of incremental moves just trying to improve things. So some amount of planning is needed. And what we've learned to do over the years is to push the boundary a little bit. We, we have... Uh, we did in the, for example, in the incentive auction, decide on the boundary between how much broadcast television was would there be and and how much mobile broadband there would be. That was made endogenous. And some places where there's package bidding, we haven't done much of that in, in the US, but certainly in Canada and the UK and elsewhere, where uh, uh, the you know whether somebody was going to be there at all and buy a big chunk of spectrum or not be there and not buy any spectrum, that became possible in, in some new auction designs. But we've learned is that do that optimally in general. And the further we get away from just making incremental moves and hill climbing to get toward an optimal solution, the less effective the traditional market system becomes. 
and the more planning is needed to coordinate all, all the pieces of the changes, taking into account externalities, taking into account the need for packaging, taking into account the need for adjacency if you're setting up a wireless system and you want not just any pieces of spectrum, but adjacent pieces. And, and so, uh, and, and so I'll, I, I am not one who advocates moving entirely to market systems for all of the decisions that will be taken. First, you have to have a structure within which the market system can refine the allocation. You can't have the a market system determine everything about the allocation. The, the, these are computationally difficult questions. The questions of what the property rights should be, the questions about how to manage externalities that exist among different uses, and those all have to be considered uh, before you get to the stage of designing your auction. It's hard for me to <clears throat> add anything to what Paul said, but you know, let, let me uh, just make one point, which is, I, th I think it has to do with unlicensed devices, and you know, that's the sort of holy grail. You know, people, typically people that don't understand you know, markets that well, you know, think we ought to be able to find a way to to use a market to determine the allocation of spectrum between licensed, exclusive licensed and unlicensed devices. But, you know, when you think about it for a minute, I mean, it's how, how are unlicensed devices, users of unlicensed devices supposed to be included in a market mechanism where they would bid against um, exclusive licensees when you when when under the commons model you can use the spectrum whether or not you pay for it and why would anyone be willing to pay for it if you can use it without paying for it and yet the commons model makes a lot of sense you know particularly for things like Wi-Fi where there isn't contention you know when you use it within your your own building so uh, you know for very short range very short range propagation. So, you know, that that's an important area. So I think, you know, unless something dra drastically changes, we're sort of stuck, you know, you know, using administrative procedures to, you know, maybe to make the decision about, you know, which, how much spectrum and what spectrum to allocate for licensed and unlicensed. That's a little depressing, I think. Well, do you think I've missed the boat on that, or what do you think? Well, I'd want to think about it some more. There is, you know, there are ways to charge for unlicensed spectrum. The device makers that use the spectrum, you know, could pay for it and so on. And, you know, we, we do usually try to um, allocate between competing uses where the competition is simple, the, to allocate between competing uses by who's willing to pay more. And, and we know that 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 leads to some amount of inefficiency because there you know there then may be people who won't who aren't willing to pay and there could be some unused spectrum on that account but those those inefficiencies need to be balanced against one another so I'm not 100 percent sure that I agree with you on that one Evan I guess it's okay for us to have some disagreement on this uh, in this discussion but Unlicensed spectrum has been immensely valuable. I mean, there's no doubt that the Wi-Fi has been incredibly valuable in our economy and the uses that have been made of other kinds of unlicensed, especially Wi-Fi, but other kinds of unlicensed spectrum as well have added have added a lot of value. The question of how you would charge for it, 
you know, if, if you were charging device makers and whether that would work. I haven't seen a study of that. And until I do, I'm not willing to, you know, jump to a conclusion about it. Yeah, right. and, there's, and there's also the question of whether you'd want to charge for it. I mean, you know, to as Paul was, you know, saying, I mean, you know, to the extent that there isn't contention, you know, when, when you have very short propagation because because of low power limits, you know, maybe, maybe there isn't a reason. I mean, maybe it's inefficient to charge. For well, I'm talking about how you decide the boundary, how much of the spectrum there should be, right? And and the uh, and and what you'd like to be able to do is say, what's the marginal value of additional spectrum, right? And, and how do you get that information except through a market? So, know? so you know, one of the things you know it has to do with you know sort of licensed sharing, you know, where you can imagine, you know, and, and some other countries have done that where they where they limit the number of companies that, that can that can use it and they have to have a license and and that's sort of you know is sort of a hybrid with this but 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 if you run it on a commons model where anybody can come in at any time and any later point it's 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 very hard to see you know how that how this could work and but but in any case this is this is a deep and difficult question and I, 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 I wouldn't put myself up against Paul in trying to figure it out, but I would enjoy talking about it. It's something that I hope, would hope both of you work on because <laughs> it would be a, another, you could get your second Nobel Prize. Let me, let's go to a couple of questions. Uh, and so first here from David Goldstein at the USGAO, uh, who asks, has anyone looked into whether the winners of spectrum auctions tend to experience winner's curse? I either winning bid was greater than the actual value of the spectrum. And let's broaden that question a little bit. This was discussed a little bit this morning. How do we know if an auction has been successful? <laughs> so on, on the first one, uh, there have been some auctions where it appears, you know, the uh, where it appears that the prices in the early days rose to some outrageous levels. I've also, in advising bidders, I know a number of bidders whose statement about the auctions goes something like this. They say, you know, all of us would be better off if they didn't allocate this spectrum at all, because in order to keep up with our competitors, we are going to, we're going to have to spend money and buy spectrum to stay in business, but our profits aren't going to go up. And if anything, they might, you know, they might go down and we're spending this money and, and uh, enjoying no increase in profit. So we do hear that. I have heard that from bidders more than once. So the, this question about whether, whether they, there's a winner's curse. Well, there's the, there's a supply side curse here that the these guys have to buy and and don't necessarily cover. And yet, when I the industry has been so profitable, take all of, that's what they tell me. But I take all of it with a grain of salt because there have been enormous profits made in this industry generally. Did I miss some part of the problem question there? No, no. I was just wondering waiting to see if Evan wanted to add. But we have another question. Um, have there have there been developments in spectrum auctions internationally that have surprised you and you think we should try? Well, internationally, one of the things that that has happened, at least in the English-speaking world, is a lot of combinatorial auctions, which have gotten a lot of resistance from bidders because they've done a better job of extracting value in, in, in many cases. Um, another thing that's happened internationally are these are these spectrum caps, which have mixed, have a whole mix of effects. 
when you put in spectrum caps that where, where you limit incumbents, you also limit competition. And sometimes that leads to lower prices. Sometimes one of the things we've seen uh, going on in other countries is is limiting all the incumbents so there's room for new entrants, which can be beneficial to to consumers if it's done well. Although I haven't done uh, personally, I haven't been engaged in any studies on that, so I'm not going to uh, comment on how well I think it's been done. I have my first impressions about that are mixed. What else has gone on internationally? I guess uh, you know those are the two big ones. What do you think, Evan? I think that's right, and. Um... The combinatorial clock auction is pretty controversial. Um, it's definitely not beloved by many bidders, and, <laughs> and, and, and maybe it's true that it extracts more value. But, but at least the claim is that it's also quite confusing in terms of you know that the results from the clock phase and and the results in the in the combinatorial phase can be very different, and you know people are surprised and. And there can also be, you know, budget constraint issues, as I recall. But um, so, yeah, that's that's, you know, I had wanted to. Well, Paul knows that I was very interested in seeing if we could develop a combinatorial auction, and and then and ran several conferences on that. It's all I will say is it's a it's a really hard problem. Yeah, it's where I began to come to understand that you know you markets were not the final solution to everything. But the again the 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 need to use assets in combination, limited specialized assets in combination, that's not something that markets are necessarily good at. That takes some some amount of planning. Questions there's still questions about who should do the planning, what role of government should be, whether there are other agencies that or entities that might be involved. But it isn't just a matter of you know trading at fixed prices that gets you to a good outcome. Bob Rape types of question. The broadcast coverage, um, uh, the incentive auction held broadcast coverage constant and used pre-computed matrices. Is it possible for the auction software to suggest alternative coverage patterns to the broadcaster that could result in a better packing arrangement? Broadcasters could accept or reject those suggestions. Yeah, we had looked at when we were designing the incentive auction. So I mentioned to you earlier that what we were doing was NP-hard. It was, it was computationally very difficult. We were concerned about two kinds of complexity. One was complexity for us, the stuff that was too hard for us to compute. And the second one was too complex for the broadcasters to, to bid intelligently. We, got, we had a lot of small broadcasters who we didn't want to pose extremely hard problems for them. So uh, we had talked about the possibility of selling interference rights. Would, how much would you charge if you got only 90% of your... Uh, coverage, you know, we, you know, we talked about when we were working on the incentive auction plan, we talked about the other ways of doing it and they were computationally much more difficult and they were much more complicated for the broadcasters. So the reason we decided that with, you know, pretty much we either buy you out or we don't is that that would be easy for the broadcasters to understand just one price to come up with. And, and it was easier to compute with because, you know, if it, now, if I need to make room for you, Scott, in the broadcast spectrum, and I need, you know, I can buy, you know, 10% from Evan and 5% from somebody else, or I can buy, you know, there became many, many more combinations of things that were possible. 
and just increasing the number of combinations increases the uh, the computational complexity. That would have been an enormous increase, and we decided it was beyond what we could guarantee the ability to do in reasonable time. So we're 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 just a little over time. Do do you have? Let me ask what what would you what research do you think is important to do in this area now, or where would you like to see the FCC or maybe NTIA go with with what we've learned so far? That's for me. <laughs> it's for both of you. So for me, you know, I I haven't been limiting myself to radio spectrum anymore. You know, I'm looking at uh, water rights and interference in that regard. I'm looking at you know electricity generation where we've moved from you know low relatively low fixed costs, large marginal costs of consuming oil or gas to you know uh, things that are basically all fixed costs, which are you know uh, wind and and solar and what effects that has on markets. So I have. Honestly, Scott, I haven't been thinking about the FCC's problems, so I should pass this on to Evan. Yeah, well, one issue that I've been interested in for many years, and this is something that that John Williams, you know, brought to my attention, is the issue of adjacent channel interference. And you know, one of the major barriers to reallocation of of, of spectrum is the potential for New uses um, interfering with incumbents in adjacent channels, and the, the the adjacent users, you know, can often you know block or delay, you know, reallocation. And one example, you know, that we've heard much about is 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 the C band with these radar um, altimeters. Uh, a question that I have. Is you know is there any market mechanism that 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 could be used to compensate incumbents with legacy systems for a reduction in interference rights? And one of the issues that 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 complicates this is you'd like to be able to do this well before the the a reallocation. So um, so incumbents in adjacent channels. Have an incentive to make their systems more robust, or you know, find other alternatives when they have plenty of time, as opposed to you know after the reallocation has been made. But the problem is, you know, who's going to compensate incumbents in adjacent channels if you haven't assigned, you don't, you don't, you don't have licensees, new licensees from the reallocation. So it's, you know, I thought about this and not made much much progress. But you know that that that's something that I think adjacent channel interference is is an important issue, and I don't know whether there's a market mechanism that that could help with that. But I sure would like, if there is, to you know understand it and and, and see if it could work. Okay. Well, with that, thank you both for joining me today. I think that was that was a really good conversation. Really appreciate your time. Um, and look forward to talking with you again soon.